Tonight's episode of Cinema Gush is brought to you by the Big Damn Heroes trope. As far as this old man can see, there's not many times in life where one gets to be the hero and save the whole ding-dang day, but when it comes for you, friend, you better make sure you're not just the hero, but the Big Damn Hero. That means that not only are you saving the day, but you're saving it in style. Couple of pro tip moves, number one. Make sure that the fool your clobbering is met with the biggest wind-up fist ever. I'm talking a finger-curling Tyler Kershaw and pitching fist with a fastball split to make their whole body twist. Number two. Your damsler, dude in distress, better be there. and better be in the worst distress of their lives. Otherwise, it's just another Thursday night. Finally, if at all possible, make this the end of your own personal arc. Whatever crap you've been dealing with that week, better be put into that one-punch man moment and sold to the highest bidder. The Big Damn Hero Trope. 100% just in time, 100% all the time. So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Alright, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to yet another episode in Season 2 of Cinema Gush. I'm Nick. And I'm Brendan. How's it going, guys? It's going amazing for me, and it's going well in your area of the world, I presume. It is. The snow melted. Hey, what do you know? Our snow just melted as well. Yeah, fancy. It's fun being in the Midwest. Mountains, right? That's right. You up in the Middle East getting all that snow still. Anchorman references. Sweet, moving on. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Dude, uh, this is going to be a very interesting episode. Um, He has not talked about this at all. Yeah, I haven't been hinting at it on the Facebook page, which if you're not, you should definitely follow us and like us on Facebook, where you can see our movie poster Tuesdays and our memes posted randomly throughout the week. And that way you'll find out when our newest episodes are posted. You know, you don't have to subscribe to anything, but you should also subscribe. Just subscribe, like, share, friend, all the things. I'm excited about today. You've been talking about this movie with me for 15 years now. Yeah. Wow. Hard to believe. <laughs> Jeez. This is... And the movie itself is, oh, I should have prepped for this, 10, 20, 36 years old. 36 years old. 36 years old. What, what are we watching? What are we talking about today, Nick? We're talking about my goat, my favorite, the bestest that there can be, Back to the Future. Oh, it feels so good to say, ah, I mean, you know, I, t- I think I might have hinted at this in the Muppet Treasure Island episode, that Muppet Treasure Island is my third favorite film of all time. My second favorite film time, my second favorite film of all time. I just found out one of our guests would like to do this season, so I will tell you when that ha- one happens as well. But I don't is even know one. what we're talking about. <clears throat> That's perfect. Good. That's okay. perfect. <laughs> I'm so excited. I, well, We're going to knock out my top three before we get to yours, I think. <laughs> yeah, we haven't done any of mine. Well, were the Snowpiercer or Dr. Sleep Falling anywhere in your top 20? Oh, yeah, probably. Definitely. Yeah, definitely in the top 20, both of them. Maybe higher. I top, right? I yeah. I'd have to go think it through, but but no, nothing yeah. in, the, in the top three yet. Yeah, top 20 lists are where it's at, I'm thinking. Because we have to follow up with Professor this season about his top 11 to 20. Mm, We're going to hold you to that, Professor. We're going to hold you to that. But this is it. This is my number one greatest film of all time. It's incredibly difficult to put into words how much this movie means to me. I mean, it's my favorite, my absolute favorite of all time. When I was eight years old, we were visiting our cousins in Southern California for New Year's. And at one point, they put on the VHS copy of Back to the Future, loved it, got to watch Back to the Future Part 2, and then at that point, it was 10 p.m. at night, and my parents said, no more, 
We have to drive to Phoenix tomorrow morning to then get on a flight to go back to Chicago. And so I left as an eight-year-old back to the future too with Marty running to tell Doc that he's back. For all of us who haven't seen Back to the Future 2, shame. And that is where it left off for me. And I cried like crazy. I was because um, you couldn't Kelly finish it? Thank you. Yeah. Because I couldn't finish it because I had seen one and two the same day, but they would not let me stay up to finish three. And I, like I said, I cried like crazy. The next morning we left early, drove back oh. to Phoenix, flew back to Chicago. Oh, so you did, it wasn't just wait till the morning. It was no, you can't. It was just no, you cannot see Back to the Future Part 3 after seeing two with such the cliffhanger that it does have. Um, my birthday, four months later, <laughs> we got a box in the mail and it was the Back to the Future trilogy on VHS. That's I awesome. Re- yeah. So thank you, Kelly and Alana, forever. And Caitlin and Rory and Moore Rose, like, thank you all. And Kieran, you weren't around then. But yes, thank you all for introducing me to what became my favorite movie of all time. When I was in Cub Scouts in PAC 83 in Ingleside, I was in the Pinewood Derby, and I modeled my first Pinewood Derby after the DeLorean Back to the Future. <laughs> I, took ele- I took fuses from the electrical box, and I hot glued them to the back of the car. And you know what? I took third place for the entire district. That's amazing. Even with all so that my, bumps and things taking off your uh, your air resistance. Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember the first race where my, my derby car went through and hit the end, and I went, yes, like really loud. And the guy goes, what's up with this kid's car? And my dad goes, it's back to the future. And all of the dad, all, all the dads, all the scout leaders just laugh their butts off. And, yeah, I ended up taking third That's place. Amazing. I don't think I have the trophy anymore, but it was like – it was like a two foot tall trophy. And then it went to um, the state levels at Gurney Mills. And I think I took eighth and then I didn't progress to uh, countrywide after that. But that just kind of goes to show how much I think about that movie. And I think uh, there's many, many reasons why. And I am going to go into a lot of writing things. I'm going to go into a lot of directing things. I'm going to ruin movies for people because this is how I as a writer think all the time. Um, but in preparation for this, I, I watched the movie again, bawled like a loser, and went through two and three again. I even took the time to rip the DVDs and re-edit them into one giant movie, which I'm calling Back to the Future, The Paradox Cut. It's five hours and 14 minutes, seamlessly going from one, two, to three. I was inspired by my stupid Lord of the Rings, no, 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 the big one edition, and I re-edited Back to the Future. <laughs> and this movie sets that up so well. I mean, scenes just blend together. It really does. I and I'll tell you. I'll tell y'all where I cut it eventually once we get to that sequence in the movie. But um, I did the commentary track with Bob Gale, who wrote the movie. Um, I did the behind the scenes for the first film. I read an entire book, which I'm going to recommend to our viewers. It's called "We Don't Need Roads: The Making of Back to the Future" by Cassine Gaines. I think he's a writer for Rolling Stones, and he's done several other really awesome in-depth books like this. But that movie was like the ultimate. Everything you never knew about Back to the Future, the behind the scenes, the writing process, where um, Bob Gale and Bob Semeckis first met up together and started making movies together. And the script for this particular film took four years, constantly being rejected by studios, completely changing what the movie was from draft one to final cut. I mean, to the extent, I don't know if most people know this or not, but the original time machine was supposed to be a refrigerator. And there actually are the blueprints that artists drew up for what the fridge time machine would have looked like online. Um, if I can find one, I'll put it in the show notes. But needless to say, Bob Zemeckis has gone on record saying this is the hardest he's ever worked on any script in his entire career. And boy, doesn't it show. <laughs> Did they put write? The effort back in. They wrote the first one or did they write all three? So Bob Gill wrote 
the paradox, well, I'm sorry, back to the future paradox, which is essentially a ginormous two and three because the plan was to shoot two and three back to back because of how amazing the box office was and all of the um, big fans that came out of that first movie. So I think there was probably some oversight with the producers because originally two was supposed to be set in a different time period where they'd go in the seventies and he'd have to help out his parents again. But there were a lot of issues with uh, Crispin Glover where he wanted a million dollars for being the little bit part that he was. And I think it's kind of part of it was his ground too, to a degree. Yeah, it, it definitely would have. I mean, well, I mean, think about how it is now. I mean, the second movie literally has to go back through the first film. So I think it at least made a little bit of difference. But because of, I think a lot of it was his ego combined with his agent being utterly convinced that they would get that much. Um, that caused this big old rewrite to redo two into what it ended up being. They were still going to go to the future. That all was going to happen. But instead of going back to 55, they were going to go to, I believe, 67. I'll have to check. There's an article oh, I will okay. post in the show notes that reviews that old draft. So, um, yeah. You, you triggered something in my mind, and maybe I'm crazy, but you mentioned that it was a refrigerator in the first draft. Was, yes. Was Kingdom of the Crystal Skull referencing Back to the Future? Because <laughs> I mean, Spielberg produced gosh, Back to the Future. Yeah, he was an executive and producer. I on feel it. like I, I feel like I, at some place in the back of my brain, that fridge scene in in Crystal Skull was a reference to something, and I'm wondering. So wondering when you Google that... Back to the Future refrigerator, the first picture has Indiana Jones with the refrigerator in Crystal Skull. So I'm gonna say absolutely yes for sure. <laughs> I found an article discussing those two movies, so... So we'll go with it, then. It's let's canon. Just, yeah, I, I, I don't... Yeah, let's assume that's a reference. Which suddenly... Guys, can you real? Do you, do you get how great this makes Crystal Skull? Because... Um, <laughs> apparently I lost Nick on that one. Okay. No, well... <laughs> You know what? No, not a great movie. That goes uh, that goes into the lottery at the end of the show. Let's put it that way. I, uh, um, I like that movie. That'd be nice to say something nice so, about that. You do like Crystal Skull? Great. I do like Crystal Skull, yeah. I've lost friends over that one. <laughs> oh, no. Not really. Um, but the reason why they didn't make it a fridge is because they were too afraid of kids locking themselves in refrigerators trying to pretend they were time machines. Interesting. And so that niche, you know, that ditched that idea. Um, but diving into... The flick. We got the opening. It's a long take sequence. They did it twice. And the behind the scenes, they talked about just what a pain it was to just open that phone. We got that Ruin Goldberg kind of entrance. We got the dog food being given. We got the coffee switching on. We got all those things going on. And then we get our introduction to Michael J. Fox, which they keep him hidden for as long as humanly possible until those credits wrap up and he's blasted that bookshelf. And then we see him, the face of our hero wearing sunglasses that I guess they paid a ton for to be in the movie. And then as Bob points out in the commentary, they are never in the movie again. Oh, interesting. But that's who our hero is. Marty McFly. We meet him that way, which is bringing me into my first of many asides today that Michael J. Fox was also simultaneously shooting family ties as he was shooting this movie. So the schedule for him for that entire year was utterly insane. Hmm. Getting almost no sleep every day. Cause he would shoot. Um, he would shoot. Fam- I keep wanting to say silver spoons, but that's not it. He keep wanting to sh- kept wanting to shoot family ties in the mornings into the afternoons. And then he would be bust right over to the universal lot to then shoot back to the future until about two o'clock in the morning, Jeez. sleep a couple hours and then get up and have to go do another episode of family ties. Jeez. 
Well, okay, yeah. this introduction, I, I even had to take notes because I, I don't know a movie that packs so much exposition so seamlessly, fluidly, and quickly into the first 45 seconds of a movie without really using any dialogue or words. It tells you so much mm-hmm. about characters before you've even met these characters. Absolutely. And you got the, the television talking about the missing plutonium, which, and this is my first big writer's thing. The gloriousness of this movie is the setups and the payoffs, which yeah. are huge. One of the biggest tools that writers have in their toolboxes are your setups and payoffs. And those are things that you set up in the movie, the promises you make in the beginning. It's the Chekhov's gun we talked about in the Quiet Place episode. I, I've got my notes written not down. Show I've got big circled. Yeah. They take Chekhov's gun very seriously. I've circled it. Insanely seriously. But you don't feel like it's an on-the-nose conversation no. most of the time. In the commentary, Bob says the the scene where they're at the family dinner, he says sometimes you just have to dump ep- exposition and bite the bullet. It didn't feel that way all the years that I've rewatched this film, which has to be in the hundred at least. Mm-hmm. But you have that sequence. We meet Marty. We have Doc Call. We get the promise of what's happening later at 115 at Twin Pines Mall. And you got to kind of love that when Marty leaves the house. Doc's house is right next door to Burger King. <laughs> I don't know if that's product placement. I think it was. You'll notice later on, Marty's brother is wearing a Burger King uniform, which I never knew what the Burger King uniform looked like in the 80s, but I guess that's exactly what it was, which is in itself a throwback to the fact that Leah Thompson used to be a Burger King spokesperson in the commercials. So that's how that all fit together. So he answers Doc's call. Twin Pines Ball is coming up. And then we get one of the greatest movie songs ever, Power Love by Huey Lewis in the News. (laughs) Awesome. We'll see him in just a couple minutes because he's the guy that tells Marty's band that he's just too darn loud at the Battle of the Bands. But that song also sets an amazing tone of the movie, of what a lot of it is about. And there are some many heavy, awesome themes in this movie, like love, like courage, like friendship, all of those great things. And it's all in that power of love song, which I've been blasting like crazy when my wife and I are playing Skippo. It's just on my playlist now, pop music. And it's so wonderful. Um, I remember picking up a cassette of the soundtrack right before we moved away from Illinois, and I think I ruined that cassette tape all the times that I listened to it. Alan Silvestri's insane Lego soundtrack, oh, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But yeah, this is important to note that when Michael J. Fox is up there, he actually does not play the guitar. It stinks, but he did play the guitar. He just didn't do he it did. for any of those sequences. He was always dubbed over for guitar. His voice was dubbed over. And that, that, that was, was a sad clear, thing to yeah. learn, but it's true. Yeah. So we get that sequence where we meet Strickland, and there's Marty and his awesome girlfriend trying to sneak him in, and he doesn't get snuck in. But we get the promise of the film, right? We get one of many amazing promises in this movie, which is that no McFly and Hill Valley ever amounted to anything. And then Marty promises that that's going to change. And this movie is going to be about that truth being changed. And we get hit with that first moment at the Battle of the Bands where he gets his first real big letdown. And then that next scene, which I will do a vlog about at some point. I don't have, I have kind of a script somewhat written for it. But this movie has many great scenes. The greatest of which, I shouldn't say that. Sorry. Okay. Well, <laughs> Fight it. with yourself. This I love is it. It's so hard. I love it. It's like, it's tied. Because this scene promises everything in the movie. Which scene? I even took the time. So right after the denial of the Battle of the Bands audition, mm-hmm. 
That to me, the sequence where he, uh, where Marty and Jennifer are walking around the town square, which by the way, quick aside, that town square is the back lot of Universal Studios. It's called Courthouse Square. If you ever get to, the chance to take the back lot tour, if you go to Universal in California, you can see it. It's appeared and on Cinema can, Gush the, the before tri- too. Many a times, yeah. it's it's been the back lot. Many movies for Nutty Professor, Jingle All the Way, Batman and Robin, Amistad, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, well, right now we talked about it on uh, on Gremlins. That's right. That's absolutely right. We did. So so they use it like crazy. And now that you now you will always be aware when you're like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. <sighs> like in Bruce Almighty, the scene with the Ferrari, like that's that's that place. Like you can even see like the courthouse right there. So. Um, had to, yeah, that quick aside, that quick behind-the-scenes wonderfulness. So the scene where Marty's band gets denied and Jennifer's trying to make him feel better, I got a transcript of that sequence, and now we're going to really dive in here. Oh, we're going okay? for it. So that scene starts with Marty saying, I'm too loud. I can't believe it. I'm never going to get a chance to play in front of anybody. That's a setup. The payoff is later Marty will get to play in front of his parents at the dance. Jennifer's response, Marty, one rejection isn't the end of the world. However, the, the promise there is Marty's dad keeps acting that way when he tries to go for Lorraine. Literally the entire movie, like one rejection. It is the end of the world every single time. Marty, nah, I just think I'm cut off for music. Again, we're going to come back to that later. Jennifer, but you're good, Marty. You're really good. And the audition tape of yours is great. you got to send it to a record company. It's like Doc's always saying Marty says, yeah, I know. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything, which is set up there. And then Marty will then say to his dad later. And then his dad will then tell Marty later on at the end of the movie. And Jennifer says, that's good advice, Marty, because it ends up being the advice at the end of the movie. And Marty says, all right, okay, Jennifer, what if I send on the tape and they don't like it? I mean, what if they say I'm no good? What if they say, get out of here, kid, you got no future? I mean, I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. Jeez, I'm beginning to sound like my old man. Literally, when Marty is asking his dad about the stories he writes, that's he talks about the rejection. Yeah. I don't know if I could take it. So Marty hears his dad talking about being rejected in the exact same manner about not showing off his stories to anyone. So that's set up and promised later on. And Jennifer then saying, come on, he's not that bad. At least he's letting you borrow the car tomorrow night. The very next scene, the car gets totaled. We know that. Like, so, so again, every line in this scene sets up something and, and pays it off later on. This scene, as well as this movie, needs to be studied by writers. Anybody who wants to get into movies, any sort of like creative adventure where you're, where you're telling a story, you got to study this sequence because it's off the nose. It's just telling you what's it's it, and it's promising all these things, whether you know it's a promise or not, and that's what makes it a great setup and payoff. And so, to, to continue forth, when when she you know he talks about uh, the, the 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 very next thing, the very next thing that happens, Jennifer says, at least he's letting you borrow the car for tomorrow. The car's gonna get told in the next scene. Marty then sees the four x four, the black truck. That is hot. someday, Jennifer. Someday, wouldn't it be great to take that truck up to the lake? It's going to happen at the end of the movie. And then Jennifer says, stop it. Marty goes, what? And Jennifer says, does your mom know about tomorrow night? No, get out. Tell my mom thinks I'm going camping with the guys. My mother would freak out if she knew I was going up there with you. At the end of the movie, she would not freak out as much. And we'll find out why. And Jennifer, she's just trying to keep you respectable. Well, she's not doing a very good job. The very next thing that occurs is the woman coming forward with the save the clock tower flyer. I think if you, I mean, I know you've all seen this movie. We're going spoiler. Obviously spoilers are crazy. That is the setup for what ends up being I don't want to say the protagonist, but it's the driver of the entire middle part of this movie to get Marty back was this promise of save the clock tower. And he ends up giving her a quarter. He takes the flyer and Jennifer writes her phone number on that flyer. And so Marty would be then propelled to keep it and not throw it away. And later on when he shows doc, when he's back in the past, he says, look, she loves me because it says, I love you and the phone number on it. That 
is the catalyst that allows Mario to keep the paper, that allows Doc to see that a lightning bolt's going to strike to give the 1.21 gigawatts to send the DeLorean back to 1985. <laughs> that all happens fluidly and beautifully in a way that you wouldn't necessarily know it if you're just sitting there crunching on popcorn watching a movie. So that scene is tied with the, the truth know, is, the, I, the big damn hero. I don't think most people would catch any of that. It's just you're in a time travel movie and you go back and you watch it and you realize, huh, this movie addresses all of it. Right? It, it, exactly. It's, it, there, it is there. I, I will state, and I, I wrote this down, that the time travel doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't seem like they care right. because the story makes sense. This is... This is the Ryan Johnson method of time travel where it's like we could spend all day long writing <laughs> on napkins, but it doesn't matter. Um, it, Are you talking about Looper? I'm talking about Looper, yeah. He also directed a Star Wars movie. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, but but it's like that's not the important thing. The important thing is the fact that the story beats tie together so perfectly. So we're not going to waste our time breaking our brains on on the scientific aspect because that's not important. But I, I, what struck exactly. me on this rewatch was how much every character beat paid off. Every every setup led to the next setup, led to the next setup. There are little things, like, I, I never noticed until this viewing them explaining where Dot got all his money. I mean, just, there's, it's like, there's an entire history of characters that you don't catch, and you don't need to catch in your first viewing, but it's all there. And it's all there seamlessly. Absolutely, and that's what makes that sequence so great, and... Again, if you're looking for creative endeavors, if you're looking to write stories, like you've got to study this movie and specifically that sequence. So love, 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 love. I'd especially love that the very next thing that happens, well, first off, we get a second taste of power love, which is like, mm, 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 thank you for doing that again. Thank you for hitting us a second <laughs> time with such a glorious song. Thank you, thank you. So after that, <clears throat> we get to Lion's Estate and we see the total car. And so we know Marty's not going anywhere this weekend. And as he walks up the steps and the door opens, we meet the greatest comedic villain of all time, Biff, played by the amazing Thomas H. Wilson. It's actually F. Wilson. He's an insanely good actor. He's a great voice actor. He really cut his teeth on this film. He had done a couple, I think he had done one or two other super small bit parts before this. And he just, I mean, next to Marty, like he's one of the greatest characters in this film. And I think, again, comedy villain-wise, like, I don't know anyone in any comedy movie that comes anywhere close to how amazing Biff is. Yeah. So we get, we get to meet him. And this scene, we get to meet Marty's father. And, you know, we'll get to re- meet the rest of the family as well. But we get to see that immediate relationship between Biff and between George. And the crap that Biff is holding George to is utterly insane. And George is just kind of standing there taking it. You know, I you got light beer. I came over and you had light beer. Cracked me up there. Looks at Marty. What are you looking at, butthead? Amazing. I mean, I know that Tom has spent most of his life calling people buttheads or people asking him to call him buttheads. He even has a song about it on YouTube, which I will also throw into yes. the show notes, called Stop Asking Me the Questions. So freaking funny. Whoop. Well, I hit the symbol just well, then. Watching this scene where he gets home, it really uh, it struck home. Like You're led to not like Strickland early on, but then you see his family and I'm like, man, your family's a bunch of losers. Yes, every single one of them, which is why Marty thinks that he himself is a dang loser. I mean, brother works at Burger King, sister sucks in her own way, the mom just looks burnt out as all get out, George is a pushover who just gets taken for everything, 
Um, and so no wonder Marty would feel like he couldn't take rejection or that one big loss of the Battle of the Bands would just, you know, stop him from doing anything else. Yeah. Like he would be like the rest of his family or maybe like Uncle Joey and end up behind bars. We don't know. But we can assume that those are the kind of things going through his head sure. because of how well everything is set up. And again, this post bit, this post Biff scene, Joey doesn't make the parole. And again, the writer said, Bob, Gale, sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and dump the exposition. And that's what this whole sequence is talking about, oh, the way I met your father, but, you know, enchantment under the sea dance and all those different things. And yeah, I just felt so sorry for him because he got hit by the car. Another setup that we paid off later. <laughs> um, and we get that. We get that all in that amazing scene. Now, Quick pause. On Back to the Future's subreddit, I actually asked the question a couple weeks ago, seeing if anybody that was on there saw the movie when it actually came out in 1985. I just want to talk about a couple of those. The top post is Navitash. He says, yes, I did. I saw it for the first time in the theater with my father when I was 15. He's since passed away, but I saw many movies in theaters with him. And even if some of them weren't, weren't great, I always enjoy spending time with him. But as far as Back to the Future... Uh, I think he enjoyed it as much as I did. He was born in 1938, so he would have been 17 in 1955. Oh. I think seeing the year recreated so accurately, especially teenagers hanging out with friends and that kind of thing, probably brought back memories for him. Huh. I know there were a couple of moments in particular that he really enjoyed, but the only one I can think of right now was when Marty is at Lorraine's house and her family's about to sit down for dinner. Lorraine's mother points out little Joey in his playpen. So you're my Uncle Joey, but I get used to these bars, kid. And his dad, he remembers his dad laughing really hard at that. <laughs> Um, there are other people who posted in the thread, like uh, Rally Midtown, who's a little bit older than 50 years old, um, talked about, well, I guess he didn't really remember too much, but that's okay. Uh, somebody mentioned when they were six, they fell in love with Michael J. Fox. They, him and his brothers would react to the Go Johnny Go scene many different times. Uh, somebody said they only saw Back to the Future 3 in theaters. Um, somebody said they were 22 years old. I had a hangover in the seats in the theater were uncomfortable. <laughs> like, so there's some awesome stories. So I will link that also into the show notes. Just these fun little stories of people who remember seeing it when they were younger. Um, and of course, one person who said they weren't born yet. Thanks for that contribution. Well, I mean, <laughs> um, were either of us? No, I was born the very next year. Mm. So, that was three years later. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. All right. Then we got the sequence where Marty almost oversleeps and gets to Twin Pines Mall. Y'all know what I'm going to say about Twin Pines Mall and Lone Pine Mall later, so we don't have to get too far into it. But when we get to the mall, we finally see Einstein, the greatest movie. No, we see the da damn DeLorean, man. We Hold see the on, DeLorean. rewind. The car rewind. I have, yeah, what are you yeah. talking about, Pines? You, see, you don't know? No, I don't know. Okay, so when Marty pulls up to the mall on a skateboard, where to say pulls up, when he skates up to the sign the, the sun in the mall says Twin Pines Mall. Because that was old man, um, oh, what is it? Sherman. The, the farmer? Uh, yeah, the Sherman. Does he the, knock down the, a tree that the, I just didn't pick up on it? <laughs> well, he says, oh, no, my pine! And he screams after Marty and shoots the car. At the end, when Marty's back in 1985, it says Lone Pine Mall. I have never caught that. What? Oh, I'm saying you can't glorious. just skip over stuff so like glad. that because I gotta imagine our audience isn't ca- a lot of them haven't caught that either. That's amazing. Well, yeah. For those who don't, when you rewatch this movie now that I'm gushing about it so much, you gotta pay attention when Marty pulls up to the mall. It says Twin Pine Mall. When he goes back to 1985 at the end of the film, it says Lone Pine Mall <laughs> because he was the one who knocked over the damn pine. So there would only be one pine for the Lone Pine Mall. That's fantastic. Yeah, man. All right, continue. I'm sorry. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. So Einstein the dog is there, and then the semi-truck opens, and out comes the DeLorean. And now for another aside. 
When I was 15 years old, one of my little brother's good friends, I believe his name was Justin, his dad had a DeLorean. Wow. And it just sat in his driveway, and he offered me the car for $10,000. And the only trouble with it was is that it did not run at all. Which really stunk, because when I went to go check it out, I mean, I was thinking, like, oh, this is going to be my first car. I'll get a loan from my parents. And I sat in there, and my head didn't freaking fit, because I was six foot three. Um, and there was not that far back that you could go with a vehicle. It really did shatter my dreams right there that I would ever own one of these cars. But I had the chance. I had the chance to get a DeLorean. How much sell for now? In, uh, probably around the same price yeah, if it doesn't run. Doesn't run. I guess it depends because I know they, they did a, a reboot of the vehicle, I think, in 2014. But, I mean, if you're getting into a tire parking space, you're just not going to be able to leave the car. So it almost doesn't make sense. So that, unless it was self-driving. That, that's, that's I guess, one of the questions I have. That I had. I actually had to look it up. Because in my mind, I couldn't ever remember being, you know, not alive at this time period, what DeLorean's pop culture value was before Back to the Future. But it was defunct at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a joke. Just a weird spaceship-looking thing. But remember, when they were getting ready to film the movie, it was not defunct. Ah. I don't think it was defunct while they were shooting either. I'm not positive on that. I feel like DeLorean stopped in late 84, which they would have been actively shooting the film at that sure. point. Um, and then the whole cocaine, like there were charges of cocaine to John DeLorean and all these other things. They actually just recently made a movie about huh. that, which I haven't had the chance to watch yet. But DeLorean... Almost, I don't, I don't even say I almost got one. There was never a chance in hell I was going to spend 10000 bucks for a car Those that didn't right. run. And also, the thing is, Solid Steel, there was nowhere I was going to push it anywhere. Like, there's <laughs> sure. this sequence when Marty goes, yeah, when Marty is actually in 55 and he pushes the DeLorean behind the coming suit lines of state billboard, you can hear Bob Gale on the commentary say, eh, that's just not realistic. Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a steel car. There's no way little Michael J. Fox is going to push that sucker. <laughs> Uh, and what's great about the DeLorean sequence when it first comes out of the car with all the smoke and everything, like Doc only could have done that for his friend Marty. It should have just been sitting there, but because he made this glorious entrance, like who would that have been for? It would have been for his sure. friend. And he made it this beautiful thing where, you know, and eventually that line where Marty's just like, you made a time machine out of DeLorean. He's like, if you're going to go back in time, why not go in style? And I don't want to brush over this because I'm talking about the damn car, but we also meet Doc. This awesome, eccentric scientist character played by the amazing Christopher Lloyd, who is still doing awesome stuff. I've gushed about Over the Garden Wall before. He is the woodsman in it, and he's in a number of other awesome uh, terrific he movies. He was in my first so post-COVID awesome. um, theater-going experience recently. He was in The Nobody. Oh, that's right. I remember that in the trailer. I don't know that that movie is particularly great. It's a lot of fun, and his role is perfect. His role is spectacular. Excellent. That makes me happy. Yeah. Excuse me. And he looks about as old as he did in 1985. (laughs) Yeah, he's uh, he's one of those actors. We talked about that, like, with during the hook one with Kyle, that Maggie Smith, you know, she also seems to never age. Yeah. So (laughs) Christopher Lloyd's the same way. Um, so we get to meet Doc and Marty. It doesn't matter how they met. It doesn't matter how they became friends. I know people are just, I wonder how, and there's a comic book that actually explains it pretty well. Um, there's been several comic books actually about back to the future, you know, Biff's experience when he first gets the almanac and what that looked like. And when Doc and Marty meet each other back in 82, I think it was in the comic series. And then if you have not played the telltale games, they're on steam. There's five of them. They're super, 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 super fun. Uh, Christopher Lloyd does a voice in it. Michael J. Fox does a voice in it. 
So I would highly recommend those as well. I'm getting off track, which is where I want to be. Listen, we learn how the car mechanic works. We love the joke about Christ being born in 000 and somehow that making sense. That's a wonderful, beautiful joke. And then we have November 12, 1955, where Dr. fell off his toilet and realized the flux capacitor is what makes time travel possible. Another excellent catalyst because we know that we're going to need that 1.21 gigawatts to do it. Doesn't run on fuel, people. Runs on plutonium. He sent those... Those poor, poor terrorists, pinball parts, okay? <laughs> and that's how he got the freaking plutonium that he got to power the freaking thing. And he was going to go 25 years in the future. That was his plan. We'll come back to that at the end of this rant. But he says he's going 25 years in the future, wants to see what's going on. And that's when we have the sequence where the terrorists come. And actually, I don't know if a lot, and this is another, uh, did you know? But he says the line, they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. That is the name of a, I think it's pop rock band from one of the former guys of Panic at the Disco. So if you look up, I don't know how, but they found me, you'll actually see, I believe, two records that are out. Quite a few millions of listens. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> An odd title for a band, sure. Does it play off of nostalgia? Absolutely. But, you know, I think that's neat. That's the line. They found me. I don't know how, but they found me. <laughs> and that's when we get the terrorists. They come and Doc gets killed, which is an amazing, amazing kick of the balls for the first 20 minutes of a movie where literally their main character's best friend gets murdered. And they have such Fantastic. good chemistry, too. Like, you really want to see him hanging out. Exactly. Yeah, and that's... I mean, I, I, thankfully, the sequels had lots of excellent moments where they're hanging out, and this movie this has does too. moments where they hang out, no, too. I, I guess I was just yeah. struck in this viewing, especially how how laudable their friendship is and how we should all seek to have friends like that that make each other better. And uh, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Keep going. Keep going. No, this is great. I mean, right before Doc dies, you know, when, when the time machine first vanishes and Einstein goes one minute into the future and that sets out their time, the stopwatches, that sequence where that car disappears, I think is one of the great defining movie shots because I've seen it everywhere where, you know, the, just the burned fire through their legs as the car disappears. I've seen a hundred posters. I've seen many desktop wallpapers of that. It's just one of the greatest freaking shots in cinema history. Which, by the way, this movie was not shot on widescreen. It was shot in a much thicker full screen aspect ratio. I think it's the same one that Wes Anderson uses. I don't quite recall what that aspect ratio is. But there is no widescreen version of this movie um, that works as well as... The movie does watching it on the full box version. Now, just from that out there, <laughs> we should comment just slightly on the psychopathic nature of Doc deciding to test out the time machine for the first time by driving right at them. <laughs> yes, that's true. And the weird part is, with that shot, is like he's shocked that it works. I know, I know. He's so, not confident he that it friend. works. Yeah, there's several moments. That's right, because he looks at the remote. And there's that time, too, when the steam vents out the back, and he's like, hmm, don't have any idea what that was. <laughs> that's right, and like he's shocked when he walks up to it. You know, it's, it's amazing that that, that occurred, because <laughs> he literally would have killed them both if it was like, oh, we, did, we only hit 87, dude. Sorry about that. Right. I'm sure there's going to be a robot chicken sketch at some point where the car didn't quite hit 88, and it just shows them getting hit, and their bodies getting mangled. Like, why did you drive it towards us? Or that's a Family Guy joke. <laughs> You're welcome, Seth and crew. You can just have it. Um, so that's so then he so then Marty, you know, his friend dies. He gets in the car because he's trying to get away from the damn terrorists. And that's when he drives 80 miles per hour in a mall parking lot, which I don't ever recommend to anybody. But that is what sent him back in time. So I guess it worked. You know, hits the scarecrow, crashes into the barn. 
Mr. Peabody, that was his name, because uh, they named him after Peabody and Sherman from the um, oh, right, Rocky right, Bullwinkle right, right, show, yeah. Side. Yeah, so that's what that was. So Mari Pine hits the, you know, destroys it. Awesome. Car shuts off. Now we are in where Lions Estates is going to be. And I think that's when it really dawns on Marty, like, okay, I'm not really in Kansas anymore. And that's when we get the Mr. Sandman sequence of him walking through 1955 in this wonderful, beautiful area where everybody's happy and kids are doing, like, pogo sticks and the skateboards with the handles on them, which they come back to later on. Um, and he's just walking around lost, and he does that classic. And I don't, I think this has been in other movies. I just can't think of, like, any great examples, but, like, grabs the newspaper and checks the date. Would anybody today, any kids today, like, know to look at a dang newspaper the other day? They're like, where's the TV? Maybe they'll say something in the intro <laughs> or the watch or something. I don't know. Um, and that's when we start getting the jokes about, well, how, let me put it to you this way, folks. There's something called the fish out of water story in writing terms where we say, oh, this is when a character is cast into a completely different world, doesn't know what to do. It's the, it's the Dorothy Wizard of Oz thing where they're somewhere they never thought they would be. They don't know what's going on. So those are, those are called fish out of water stories, which plays so very well with a joke that he constantly gets about wearing a life preserver. Right. His watch going off, the Pepsi free, all those different things come into play like immediately. So it kind of hits you over the head in a way that the audience needs, but in a very comical way because, again, the life preserver thing. His watch going off in the phone booth and freaking out the guy. Um, the Pepsi Free, which I didn't even know what the hell Pepsi Free was when I was younger. I think it actually was like, oh, it's caffeine free. That's yeah. what it was. Is so, it, but I didn't know that growing up. So I thought it was, it was weird. Diet, is it not? I don't know if it's diet. Looking it up. We should looking know these up. things. These are very while important. You're, <laughs> no, you're right. Well, caffeine while, free. while you're looking that up, he caffeine free because he also asks for a tab, and I'm 90% sure that doesn't exist anymore. And the last time anyone talked about tab was Ready Player One. So. That's another wonderful 80s joke. Anyway. So then we go, and he relax. You know, he's like, just give me a coffee. And so he's just sitting there, and he starts mimicking the same motions of the guy next to him. And we start to find out, boom, this is his dad from freaking 30 years ago. And I love the implication that Biff has literally been a bully for 30 freaking years. He's good at it. There's just something about... He's, he's Yeah, you know, like, don't quit your day job. <laughs> um. And, you know, Biff makes his entrance and that's, you know, that's the actors were all that age. They were aged up for uh, all the other sequences in the 80s. But that was how they looked. And it was good to see Billy Zane in his first movie ever. Yeah, I did not realize Billy Zane was in this until actually looking at the IMDb list just now. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't put together that was him. Yeah, Yeah, that's his first movie, man. Billy Zane. Um, And, you know, George gets bullied to do the homework, which is a throwback to the way that he was being bullied by Biff earlier. Um... And then we meet Mayor, a young Mayor Goldie, which, you know, Marty gives... I don't know if this is the grandfather paradox or not, but Marty gives him that oh, idea to become mayor. We can't talk like about paradoxes here because we'll break the entire story thing <laughs> open. Like I said, time travel makes no sense, but it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So he wants to talk to his dad because he's just... I don't, I don't know what his necessarily his immediate goal is, but like he runs after his dad. And that's when he finds him on the tree branch peeping into what ends up being Marty's mother's window. And it's great because um, there's a moment where they say bird watching that he was bird watching. I believe it was earlier in the movie where yeah. it's like your father yeah. was bird watching. He got hit by the car. Um, it's so great that he totally wasn't bird watching because when he jumps down and Marty pushes him out of the way and Marty gets hit by hit, hit by the car by Lorraine's dad, 
I love that line that he shouts to his wife that another one of these damn kids got hit by the car. Implied that there are <laughs> a hell of a lot I of peeping know. Toms in Hill Valley that are almost getting hit by cars. Every day they're well, bird watching the kid, in the yeah. middle of a suburb with houses on either side of the street. There's only one thing to look at. Exactly. But also, it woman. also it not only implies that a lot of kids are peeping on Lorraine. It implies that Lorraine is always changing her clothes in front of that window. Yeah, I suppose that is, isn't it? <laughs> so what we're learning here is that even back then, both of his parents were kind of losers. Yeah, I mean... one's an exhibitionist and one's a peeping dog. <laughs> oh, and then you know, Marty. You know, I gotta say too, uh, the sound effect. I will always remember that sound that they created of Marty's head hitting the pavement because it just sounds so damn real. Like the back of the head hitting the asphalt. It's like, oh, like it sends, it's not like a great HD sound. It's not super loud. It's not in surround, but that thunk makes you want to puke because it sounds like he just broke his skull. Yeah, just got eviscerated. So... And then, you know, he wakes up a couple hours later and he meets Lorraine. Leah Thompson, one of my first young movie crushes ever. Good God. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman. Holy crap. Um, and then we kind of get the, 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 the hints here that, you know, when Marty's talking to Jennifer at that, the, one of the greatest scenes of saying my mother would absolutely flip if she knew that I was going out with you camping. Kind of find out that Lorraine's a little, hmm, I don't know. Was floozy the right Look, word? Let's let's cut to the chase. She took the guy's pants off while he was unconscious. Yes. I mean, it, there's no there's no subtlety here. And again, a writer's note: character is action, and that was her action was removing his pants, calling him Calvin <laughs> Klein, putting her putting his pants on her hope chest. I don't know what the hell a hope oh. chest is, <laughs> but boy, does that tell you everything that she's hopeful? Because his pants and are on the hope that- chest. Don't most people put the... She checked for the name on the underwear. Isn't Calvin Klein usually written on the inside band? I don't know. I've never had Calvin Klein, so I actually don't know. I don't I don't know either, but nonetheless, she was investigating his underwear. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. It's almost like she was in front of that window for a reason. <laughs> uh, it's rough. Problematic. We do yeah. not condone. But we, hilarious. We Moving do not. Forward. Especially the scene where she's just like, uh, you know, immediately afterwards, she's just like, oh, it's my mother. Here, put your pants on. She chucks the pants at me, tries to put them on, and he falls face first, which uh, in the commentary, Bob <laughs> says, that, oh, Michael could just do that all day, time and time and time again. Like, amazing comedic timing. Which, looking through his career, I agree. Which brings me to yet another yeah, aside. Absolutely. Right before we started this episode, I sent Brendan a clip of the behind the scenes from the movie The Frighteners that uh. Peter Jackson directed, where Michael J. Fox was so impacted by Back to the Future. And maybe this was because of his insane schedule. As he's actively, and we'll put this in the show notes, as he's actively shooting the Frighteners, he's supposed to be calling out to this other character, but he keeps calling this character Doc. The, the, char- the character's name is Judge. Thank you, yes, Judge. And he's like, hey, instead of saying, hey, Judge, he goes, hey, Doc. It's and another he, title. Yeah. He does. Man, this. You gotta see it. If you're listening to this, look that up in the show notes. It's hysterical. There's a push-in zoom on Michael J. Fox, and he turns around, <laughs> and he's not even... I mean, he's not even a little bit not playing the role of Marty in that shot as yep. he yells, Doc! And then realizes his mistake. It That is that has got to be top bloopers of all time. That's an incredible blooper. And I love that you said that he could have looked more like Marty McFly. Here's another thing most people don't know. 
They shot close to 70% of this movie with a different actor as Marty McFly. Eric Stoltz originally got the part of Marty because they weren't willing to give up Michael J. Fox from the TV series that he was on. Again, I want to call it Silver Spoons. I don't know why. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so Eric Stoltz shot a huge chunk of Back to the Future. And then they fired him, which they say was the hardest decision ever, but it just wasn't working out. Now, you're going to see... now. The editors and the directors say like there is no sequence where you can see Eric Stoltz in the movie. He's edited out. But I found an interview where Tom Wilson literally is giving the timestamps of when you can tell it's Eric Stoltz. And we'll get to that in two scenes. <laughs> so. Okay. Uh, but yes, I cannot. I mean, I'm just not versed in 80s actors, first of all. But just like, who else could have been Marty McFly, man? Like, it's a career-defining you know, character. And it will always be Michael J. Fox, you know, irregardless of Spin City or any of the other movies that he's done, he will always be Marty. And I'm sure he probably still gets that to his day. And I can state, now this is, I I actually was a Spin City before I saw Back to the Future. Like, considerable amount. Sure. Um, Because you think about a TV show, you're seeing them for hours and hours and hours. So I saw more of Michael J. Fox per hour in Spin City than Back (laughs) to the Future. Then I saw Back to the Future, and I can't think of him as the character from Spin City anymore. Like, I have no recollection of that show. Back to the Future is completely assumed, uh, taken over Michael J. Fox is space in my brain. <laughs> I usually don't do this, but is there a helicopter landing in your backyard? <laughs> oh, is there? I have my headphones on. There is a helicopter. Yes. We're not terribly far from the hell, the, uh, the airport. So, um, I apologize for my high definition attention deficit disorder, but I was like, "Is that a damn helicopter in oh, the background?" I'm actually I'm seeing the thumping on the on the waveform on on Audacity. So. Oh, well, we're for sure keeping. Well, that we in. can either cut that out or just keep it as a little. You want to so a little blooper from Cinema Gush. There was this one time we we're talking about Back to the Future and a helicopter passed overhead. And everyone was oblivious. <laughs> we um, can timestamp it for you if you pay attention. You'll find it. Yeah, that's right. We'll timestamp it for you. Um, so then Marty comes downstairs and he essentially meets his uncle, his aunt, and his grandma and grandpa, and his, well, I guess he meets Joey, but I don't know how much he really knew Joey in his 85 life. But again, that great line, better get used to these bars, kid. So funny. And I believe yeah. it's, I don't know, oh, it's either the comic or it's episode two of the Back to the Future Telltale Games that actually tells how Joey ended up in jail. Really? So the, I would I won't yeah. tell you what it is. I just would recommend that You're you not guys play tell the me. Game. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, you gotta okay. play it. Okay. I'll give you my Steam account All right. login. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so anyway, uh, I love the line that he must be originally. He has two televisions. He says the thing about a rerun, which ended up being a a, a, a meme for just a little bit of time back in 2016. Um, one thing I never noticed was that line when Lorraine's mom, Marty's grandmother, says. Uh, you know, we'll call your parents. And Marty says, oh, uh, nobody's home yet. And I caught that on this view. Yeah, exactly. I was, that was exactly my thought. I was like, oh, another thing. Another thing I didn't catch before. <laughs> uh, and uh, then he gets the directions to Doc House, runs the Doc's house, meets Doc for 1955 with his absolutely ridiculous suction cup, helmet, head. Oh, that's great. And Benji- <laughs> like, that's got, like, that's got to be a first prop of any kid. I mean... It looks like it's a director set with yeah. giant pulsating. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. And then this machine doesn't work. Uh, and he runs off and Marty tells him about, uh, 
you know, I travel back in time with a time machine that you invented and Doc runs away and he's like, well, who's the president? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, the actor. And he starts making fun of what he thinks the future could be. And then that scene where Marty knocks on the door and says, you know, the flexopath, the bump in your head. I know the whole story. You know, you were sitting on top of your toilet and, you, you know, and he tells the whole thing. I just love that moment. I, I love the whole movie. Shut up. I love that moment where Doc <laughs> Burst opens the door with these massive bug eyes and this look of shock, like, oh my gosh, this kid is telling the freaking truth. <laughs> it's so good. And then, you know, they go and get the car, and he shows them the sketch with the flux capacitor. And that's when we get a lot of the follow-up from earlier in the movie. Like, I was talking about with the flyer and things like that. Doc, you're my only hope. I gotta get back to the future. Um, we get the... I don't know how they ever pulled this off. I'm sure it's a coaxial cable thing that one of our technical viewers could tell me about, listeners. Uh, how they could have possibly hooked up that camcorder to the television and got the playback. Oh. It doesn't matter that much. I'm sure it works out. Yeah, can can you hook up? Did TVs in the 50s have hookups? Well, I think everything had coaxial because of antennas. Because I, I remember that very well, having to switch out the NES with the coaxial at the back. Um, so if Mar- Marty had the co- you know that converter, good on him. I mean, it, it worked. <laughs> Otherwise, Doc would have had to have watched it through the eyepiece and then would never have heard what... You know, his future self would have told him about the 1.21 gigawatts. And, okay, uh, that that might be my favorite moment in the movie is when he runs over in his panic, and the first thing he does is pick up a picture of Thomas Edison yes, and start talking to it. Yes, oh, All those pictures. <laughs> what am I going to do, Tom? <laughs> oh, and the, a bolt of lightning, a bolt of lightning, and that's, you know, the clock tower. We know it's going to happen. We got ourselves a week. Which, but, but yeah. also, that's the point where... To me, I would have loved to be an audience in the theater because that's the point where he says we need to get you back to the future and points to the audience. Like, oh my gosh! I feel like that would have been hysterical <laughs> in the theater because because we're seeing in the in 1985 is the past, but if you're sitting right there, that had to be funny. Oh, hey, that's the title! Like such a mystery science theater but moment. As as he's pointing at you in the movie theater, we gotta get you back to them. Yeah, I. I never yeah. caught that, man. Excellent. Now you're teaching I, me stuff. I, that had to be on purpose, don't you think? I, I mean, I think it, it definitely was just because of how the character was and how Christopher Lloyd like truly embodied like the vision of it and then took it his own direction. I think that makes perfect sense because, well, so they talk about this in the commentary as well, that Michael J. Fox, you know, he's, he's short. Christopher Lloyd's a taller man. They had a lot of sequences where... Uh, Doc would be pacing back and forth and Marty would be trying to catch up to him, not just for dynamic shot purposes, but to, t- to kind of like hide the height differential a little bit. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with what we're talking about, but it's just another one of my asides so that I just had to throw in there. That fits in that scene, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so again, so Doc says, you know, it's going to happen in a week. Great. Okay, we already have the solution to our movie. What makes Back to the Future elevated from a lot of scripts that I read, a lot of oh, modern movies, I guess, a lot of... Who's the guy who did all of the um, Resident Evil flicks? Um, Paul. Oh, Paul sales. Thomas. Not Paul Anderson. Thomas Anderson. What? Paul W.S. Like that? Cause... They're so close. But either way. Um, Jovich's husband. Yeah. Either way, like the difference between like those movies and the story uh, and a lot of the other like what, what Red Letter Media calls stuff dumped on Netflix is like that extra step with the story because – you know, Marty's like, and you know, I just, I neglected to mention this, but when, when, when Marty shows Doc the picture of, uh, 
his brother and sister, and one's wearing the class of 82 or 84, I think. Doc points out that that's not a very good photo finishing job because the hand is missing. Already hinting yeah. at the fading that's going to be occurring. And so, again, what makes it great, we have a week, but then he's like, Marty, like, did you come into interaction with anybody? And Marty has to admit, like, yeah, I kind of stopped my parents from getting together. And that's... <laughs> That's so great. It's so great because now we have this other goal for him is not is to not only get back to the future, but to get his parents back together. And so then we get to the high school the next day, which I love Doc's Hawaiian shirt. I'd love to own one. Uh, we get Strickland again, still bald. He says the line, God, didn't that guy ever have any hair? <laughs> and Strickland, man, we also learned at this point that not only is he tough, but he's tough on the absolute wrong people. I yeah. Mean, you, you kind of get the idea that he bullied. could be tough on Biff later because of the stairs. And I guess you have to see Back to the Future 2 for the tougher stuff on Biff. But yeah, you're right. Like, he goes after those being bullied. Great. Yeah. <laughs> right. Makes you wonder how that affects you if you're if you're uh, Marty McFly going dealing with him for four years straight. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we get the the line about it's the Florence, the Florence Nightingale effect. Uh, for Marty, you know, that, that his mother Lorraine fell for him that way because she mm-hmm. was taking care of him, which is what, you know, she would have had for George, but instead is having for Marty. Uh, I love that line where Doc kind of sees George getting the crap kicked out of him. And he goes, what'd your mother ever see in this guy? And then explains <laughs> that whole thing. Um, and so what do they like to do together? Nothing. There's a lot of great moments like that where Marty is self-reflecting on his parents' relationship and how kind of crappy it is. And that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but that's also what right. makes what ends up happening so damn great. So then we get to uh, Marty's not going to have to get George to find a different way to ask Lorraine out rather than uh, bird watching. So I talked about this a little bit earlier. We get that great scene. And I, I snippeted the script just so I could read it out to everybody here where Marty grabs the book. George, oh no, I never let anybody read my stories. Marty, why not? George, what if they didn't like him? What if they told me I was no good? Uh, this must be pretty hard for you to understand, huh? And Marty says, no, George, it's not hard to understand at all. And in the descriptor, in the script, it says, there's a long moment as Marty looks at George in a new light and sees himself. And again, that's one of the big themes of the movie is kind of seeing the faults that you have in somebody else and generational things are being passed down. And a lot of that came from the way that George was picked on. He never had a chance to really find courage, which is another one of the great themes in the movie. So, um, you know, he... Wants to ask Lorraine out. Biff gets in the way again, and Biff will constantly be getting in the way. It's like one of the few repetitious things in the movies, but it works so well because Tom is so freaking good. Um, you know, he lets Marty slide because Strickland is there. So maybe maybe that look that Strickland gives Biff is kind of his way of being hard on him. But George is not going to... Yeah, go on. I, I just want to state, I think my favorite line of Biff's is when he's make like a tree and get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I tend to use that as much as I can, or at least as often as it makes sense to use in conversations. <laughs> Don't make like a tree. Does it come up often? <laughs> not as much as it used to. <laughs> Gosh, I can do a lot in high school and college, but certainly not like in the working life. Although maybe I'll start dismissing like my employees tree. that way on my one-on-ones. I'm just like, I'll make like a get tree and get out of here. Oh, I'll make more enemies that way than friends. So the very next <laughs> sequence, we got the cassette tape where Marty's going to you know use this thing to convince George to ask Lorraine out. What's great, and they mentioned this in the commentary, on the cassette tape it says Eddie Van Halen on the cassette, because I guess the rest of Van Halen didn't sign off on 
them using like a Van Halen song. So that's why you just have this mm. crazy like Van Halen-ish shred, you know, from, uh, and that's when George sees, not well, not Marty, but he doesn't assume Darth Vader from the planet Funken. And he does the, you know, there's that meme of yeah. Dumbledore where he's just like, you have to compete in the <laughs> Hunger Games Cyclops or something like that. You have this sequence where I yeah. thought of that exact same thing watching it. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like there's a bit of the Battlestar Galactica. There's a bit of the Star Trek with the Vulcan symbol. There's Star Wars with the Darth Vader name on it. So, like, that's the original get everything possibly wrong meme that there could be. But see, now what I want is a side comic series is a really in-depth, kind of serious, dark look at George's psychology as he goes through the next two decades and sees all <laughs> these pop culture things emerge. And what, is it, what does that do to a man on the inside? <laughs> yeah, especially never having to tell anybody that particular thing again. And Marty, you know, reemphasizes that, oh, just keep that under your hat forever, okay? Cool. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so then George get, works with the curse to go ask out Lorraine. He asks for milk and gets a nice milk slit across the bar. And he tells Lorraine that she is his density. What? Oh, Destiny. Yes. <laughs> and then Biff shows up again. And another moment that, you know, works so well is the record scratch from when Biff calls out McFly. Like nobody would have punched the jukebox to shut it off or whatever, <laughs> but it works. You know, the music wouldn't keep going. And then we get Marty being the person that he is can't help but intervene, you know, not yeah, just protecting his father. It's, it comes back to just who he is as a character. Like, you know, punches Biff. Well, so before the Biff punches, he just pushes him out, shows him out of the way. And then Biff gets that beautiful rising sequence, which then we'll see repeated throughout movie two and three of Biff being that much taller than Michael J. Fox. Hmm. Now, this is the sequence where we start getting little clips of Eric Stoltz. And you can look this up on YouTube. If you just, I think it's just Back to the Future skateboard sequence. Uh, somebody in the comments timestamps every time that you can see a slight, like, I'm talking two, three frames tops of a different Marty. The hair is black, <laughs> he's taller. Um, so, this is the scene that you can see that more than any other. Plus, and the reason why Tom knows that that's in there is because. He actually punched him in the face, which super sucks for another actor to do to another oh. actor. Um, Wait, who punched who? The guy who actually played Marty first, Eric Stoltz. He actually yeah. was shoving Biff like with all of his yeah. might, pushing his palms, and he said like he was bruised like crazy at the end of the day. And the sequence where Marty punches Biff, hey, what the hell is that over there? And Biff looks away, and Marty punches him. In the original so, take with Eric Stoltz, he actually punched Tom he in the face. Actually hit him. Yeah, actually hit him. Because he talks For about no in the interview. Reason, now that he was cut out. Well, Tom said in the interview that he was all method, method, method. And it's just like, oh, okay, buddy. <laughs> like, everybody had to call him Marty yeah. and things like that. Uh, Marty McFly is one of those characters. Well, but that's that's the reason why I think um, Michael J. Fox is so good in the role, is there's almost a carefree. If it was a. I mean, if you had Jared Leto playing Marty McFly, I don't care how funny he is. It's oh, boy. Work. right? Oh no! You need that. You need that devil may care attitude to make the character work. It's method acting. I have issues with method acting in general, but whatever. Man, now I'm gonna think about Jared Leto's Marty McFly. So good, good. Oh, thirty seconds to Marty. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> so then we got this awesome sequence with some great music, where Marty invents essentially the skateboard, and I love the way that he walks over that car maneuver. Like that never gets old. Of him running yeah. up the hood, over the windshield, the middle seat, jumping off the back of the car, landing on the skateboard. 
And then, of course, the manure truck, and then they hit it. I love that part so much. Oh, it's so good. Uh, And, you know, Lorraine, we kind of get the little, you know, when that sequence ends, like Lorraine's going to follow Marty after this. But I love that next scene. I love all the scenes. Shut up. I love the scene where, like, you can tell Doc really took the time to make that town model. Like, you can see, like, there's a salt shaker and a pepper shaker and other things that he would have found around uh-huh, the house uh-huh. to create this model sequence, which probably explains the confidence that he would have had of having the DeLorean drive exactly at them, you know, because he had maybe he modeled it first out of things that he would have found from 80s products. But um, again, this snippet from well, the, the script. I, yeah. That. That's what I love about his characters. He's so detail-oriented, but he doesn't clean up the pile of oily rags in the corner. He just leaves them in a pile. You know, the things that can spontaneously start on fire. Yep. And we also, I don't, I don't want to neglect to mention this, we also get the, the the little bit where Doc is constantly rewinding the I don't know how, but they found me part. And Marty wants to tell him, you know, hey, this is what's going to happen, but Doc won't let him do it. That first part, yeah. that first time happens there. Um, although maybe it happens earlier. It doesn't matter. It matters a little. It doesn't matter that much right now. But anyway, here's a snippet from the script. The toy car's antenna snags the cable. Sparks fly in the toy car. Catches fire. It flies off the tabletop into some drapes. Well, we know it's oil rags. And they catch fire as well. Brown grabs a fire extinguisher and puts everything out. Marty shakes his head. You're instilling me with a lot of confidence here, Doc. <laughs> Nowhere in the script does it have that amazing shot of Doc going, <laughs> Which, for my first couple years of Facebook, was my profile picture of that shocked face of Doc. So, oh, man. an amazing, amazing shot. Yeah, and then Lorraine shows up, and she says, again, I had to snip this from the script, because it's so great. George isn't exactly my type. He's sort of cute and all, but he's, well, moving closer to Marty. I think a man should be strong so he can stand up for himself and protect the woman he loves. Don't you? Another setup that's going to get paid off in a little bit. I love that idea because, and I didn't notice this until Gail mentioned it in the commentary, but you can see Doc kind of like not in agreement to that, which I never yeah. caught before. But it's just like, even Doc Brown, for as eccentric as he is, can't deny what a truth that is. A man should be strong but, so he can stand up for himself and protect the woman he loves. He has to agree. I think that's, that's one of the weird things in this movie is you've got, you've got a kid character kind of becoming a father figure for his father and you kind of got to wonder if maybe how much of an influence Doc had had on Marty before this. Because maybe he's gotten some father figure from him in the past in a couple of years. It's, I, I, just, I love the dichotomies that are bashed up against each other. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. Um, and now we're going to get to a reference that nobody will get. There, the very next sequence where Marty's talking to George. There's nothing to be scared of, George. All it takes is a little self-confidence. You can do it. If you put your mind to it, you can do anything. And that's where he gives George that line that George will then use later. And that line came from Doc. So as you were just saying, Doc definitely had that influence on Marty because he uses what Doc tells him about putting his mind to anything to his father, which his father would then tell him at the end of the movie. Um, So now here's the reference nobody's going to get. There's a part where Lorraine says, don't be so square, Marty. Hugh and Lewis and the news did the song had to be square which I think their undisputed masterpieces have to be square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. It's a pivotal scene, man, okay? And if you didn't get the American Psycho reference, that is okay. Oh my gosh, we just came full circle. So. Uh, I'm still catching up. No, no, that's okay. There's a, there's a lot. Yeah, go, go, go. So, so Lorraine, when, when Marty's parked in the car with Lorraine, we're moving to that point. 
Um, yeah. You know, he, she smokes and she drinks. Both of the things that, like, she definitely would have looked down on her son for, although she did drink a ton as an adult because she had the vodka that she poured. Um, I thought it'd be funny to throw in the line about when she says, don't be so square, but Huey Lewis in the News, who did The Power of Love for this movie, also did the song Hit to Be Square. Hit to Be Square is the song that Christian Bale uses to kill Jared Leto to an American Psycho. Mm-hmm. And now Jared Leto is Marty McFly. <laughs> oh! <laughs> How do we do that? Um, Good Lord. I'm not sure I like it. I, uh, I hate it for sure. Universal implications. All right. Yeah. So Okay. So moving on. Um, so, the, so right before that sequence of them pulling up with the car, I'll say, you know, they, they go and they set up the lightning rod onto the DeLorean and, and Doc has uh, that moment with Marty where, you know, don't tell me again what's going to happen. And Marty decides to write that letter, which we'll come back to later. So then he takes mm-hmm. his mother to the dance and they park for a little while. And uh, she's excited to park, which is wonderfully terrifying. And I guess that was the scene that was too risque for Disney to purchase the movie. And that's why they said no to it when those guys pitched it to them all those years before. Um, but it certainly worked for TriStar. So kudos to them. The Tristar was universal. It doesn't matter. It matters a little. Anyway, um, then we have, you know, George. He's just kind of like chilling in the dance, like snapping along to the music. like Being that guy that we all saw at every childhood dance. Oh, I know. I mean, maybe he was <laughs> every now and then. Who can say? Indeed. Uh, then we get to that pivotal scene where, you know, we're expecting George to yank Marty out of the car, but no, it's Biff that does it. And it's it's so damn dark because... I mean, for goodness yeah. sake, even his boys pause and look at each other, but knowing exactly what Biff is doing is not correct. But they're so afraid of him that they do run away. Um, and, you know, Marty gets thrown into the back of the car. And, uh, yeah, here we go. So we get that scene where George comes to the car, and it's tied for the greatest scene in any movie ever, as well as, you know, if you take away the writing stuff, which I know doesn't matter to a lot of people, but, like, this is the scene. This is the greatest scene in any movie ever uh, because it's not what goes as planned, but he finds that strength and that courage and he lays him out. And I love how many edits that is when he just slides down the car. Um, and that's where I lose it. Every time I watch the movie, you get to see a boy well, become movie, a man and it's so freaking yeah, beautiful. Right. And, and, and the, it's the same sequence that they planned for, but it took away the easiness of him being able to yank Marty out of the car and made him actually face his demons. Yes. And I feel like the movie, this comedic slapstick, not slapstick, but you know, it's got this, this, this uh, very upbeat, rapid pace. The movie slows down and gets very serious for about 30 seconds mm-hmm. and appropriately so. And it's, it's great. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much about that scene that works. The love in her eyes that she sees in him and the swelling of the, I want to say it's the violins, rehashing the theme of the movie um, and the way that they walk together, arm in arm, eye to eye as they go to the dance. Like, it's so... Oh, oh sorry. It's just, oh my gosh. <laughs> Again, it's my favorite good. movie of all time. And that is the greatest scene in movie history. I won't say anything else is better than that. That's it. Like... You pack your bags, go home. It's over. Like, you know, that, that's the great, that's to me. That's it. It's the greatest scene of any movie ever made. It's amazing. It's so good. It's the greatest catharsis. It's the one uh, the twist of it. Cause you don't think it's going to be Biff. Like it's and Biff gets laid out. Cause he's a jerk the whole movie. 
It's amazing. It's I, I'll never come close to that. No, nobody else will. It's amazing. I love it. Okay. Shutting up. <laughs> <sighs> okay. All right. So then, all right, we get that. Um, we get okay. So where where the hell was I? Jeez. Uh, so okay, they're, they're at the dance. He's <laughs> yeah. in. He's locked in the trunk. I had to, okay, had to mention the band because I, I I love when all the guys come out of the car like the clown car moment all at the same time. Yeah. You know who you calling spooks? So good, and I apologize if that's I don't I don't know if that's a slur. I I just, I just think that's so great that they throw that back in their faces and they run away, um, and it hurts the guy's hand. Yet another complication. Um, and I love the way that Marty is explaining to the band that he will literally disappear if his parents don't get together. And because it's implied that they were smoking weed in the car, they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, look, man, like, that's not going to happen, all right? Because he can't play unless you know not <laughs> Like, they go with it, which is amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. Because, hey, it actually seems plausible what the kid is saying. But again, if we don't have a guitarist, this isn't going no, unless you know someone who plays guitar, right? That's the line. And then we cut to Marty playing the guitar, which pays off him playing the guitar in front of people and playing music in front of people, the line from the scene earlier. And I love that. I love that scene so much because again, like there's more of that tension. They the, they say it's the one shot they don't like um, that never really worked. Is they had LucasArts do the vanishing hand, but there wasn't enough time because the movie had a window it had to hit, but there wasn't enough time to make the hand look as good as it could have possibly looked. And so I think the writer oh, and director still. Great. I think it look. I think it looks fine, passable for eighty five yeah. maybe. But they, you know they they say they they cringe when they see that. I something I, that I did. I did have the thought when his hand started disappearing, you can kind of see the black outline just like you can in the snow speeders on the assault on Hoth. So the what? fact that you're saying it's Lucas, <laughs> Lucasfilm, like it's the same because when they do the matte group, blue, green screen, blue screen, whatever they're using at the time, there's always that, that black outline. Oh I, yeah. Okay. So that's gotta be the only thing they're referring to. Cause it looks great though. I mean, I think they just think the hand looks a little bit bigger, but again, yeah. To, I, it's the whole you're too close to it, right? You know, of their own work. Yeah, um, but then you know that sequence gets wrapped with George kiss, you know, pushing off one last jackass, <laughs> kissing Lorraine, yeah. and then like you know they're gonna be together. And Marty shoots up um, the band leader who actually is singing that song. Um, so good. So then we get you know Marty get you know let's play another one. Let's play another one. Marty's like I got time, idiot. Um, and they play the Johnny Be Good, <laughs> which is. A great sequence. There are some great shots in there, like when they, you know, the camera pans up and down and through the dress and all those different things. And uh, he, he does all those amazing, like, it, guitar licks and just stops everyone flat. And again, this becomes a meme later in life of the whole, you know, I guess you guys should start ready for that. I've seen that all over the place on Facebook. That cracks me yeah, up. So, um, yeah, and the show goes off really well. And then Marty, that was interesting music. And I, every time I watch that part, I always think of the second one where she stutter, stammers on the word music. And the first one, she just says music. And I wish they would have just had her say music instead of music. Uh, sorry, that's too much. That's too much. <laughs> Something I would have never noticed. I know. it's That bugged me since I was a little kid, dude. Because I saw them back to back. I was just like, why did she say music instead of just music? <laughs> anyway, anyway, we get to you know marty changes because he doesn't want to go back look at in his zoot suit and uh he t- they i guess take a little more time yeah i guess they uh <laughs> i got time it's just jackass <laughs> and then uh you know he says that great part about you know my you know my dad laid out biff he's never done that in his life ever and doc kind of pauses and he goes that look never? he makes yeah well, yeah <laughs> never mind <laughs> which yeah, is another setup to be paid off later oh uh, he's like yeah forget about it don't worry about it and you know, that climax, man. Oh, my gosh. Like, the cutting back and forth, the, the movie magic of him hitting hit the, his head against the steering wheel and that somehow starting the car up. 
and the tension of Doc on top of the clock trying to get the plug in and the music. And it's just, it's, it's perfect and wonderful. And it's another one of those things where when that does happen and Marty goes into the future seven or eight minutes early, I think, um, mm-hmm. when they do the match cut of Doc looking up at the clock tower and then it matches to 85 with the helicopter, you can see the ledge is gone from where he knocked it off from when he was walking on, walking ah, on it. Yeah. So, and then, you know, you have that moment where Marty being, <laughs> he looks at the ugly downtown. He's like, oh, it looks great. Everything's great. Old movie theater that's now a terrible church. And it's like a strip club here and porn movies. And there's a homeless guy. It looks great. It just looks great. You know? And they, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, the car won't start again, which I, I know that they had a lot of trouble with the car in the movie, uh, or at least making the film. It reminds me of all the trouble they had making Jaws, where the shark just didn't work. Um, but, you know, the car doesn't work. And then the, the terrorist van goes driving right by, and it's like, crap, here we are down to the wire. And boom, like, you know, Marty gets to Lone Pine Mall just in time to see Doc get shot, and he's about, he's about to shout no, but the past self of him shouts no instead, and so he gets this kind of, like, holy hell moment where he's seeing events played out from, like, a different camera angle. Um, which is amazing. Which is amazing, and he runs, and, you know, Doc is dead, but he blinks, and you hear the twinkling of the music, and he sits up, and it's, again, you know he decided to look at the letter, even though he tore it up, you know, a couple minutes ago to us. Right. But it was, you know, 30 years ago. And he thought, what the hell? And maybe, maybe in that way, Doc's character changes because he's even more risk taking ish than he was before. I don't know. I'm trying to find an arc here, but like he figured what the hell, you know, Doc doesn't really need that much of an arc. You're right. He doesn't. I, I kind of like that in this character here, but I mean, I'm trying to think he kind of, he kind of has one. I, I don't know. I just I, I I like that Doc is the stable force in the movie, even with all of his manic energy. I like that that uh, that presence he brings. Yeah, and just the way the music is timed with him like blinking. I don't know what that. Oh, I should know what instrument that is. It's like I don't know if it's high keys or if it's strings. So it's like in time with the blinking and that realization that he is alive. Oh, so good. So freaking good. And now, so earlier I said he was going to go back 20, or he was going to go in the future 25 years. Doc now says 30 years. I think it's because Marty went back 30 years. You know, like I, I think that that realize it, like just to make it round in his scientist mind, mm-hmm. maybe that's what works to him is like, well, I was going to go 25, but Marty went back 30 and 30 years ago is when I discovered the flux capacitor. What's 30 years more in the future? Like what's 30 more, you know, what's five more years than the 25 years originally planned. Great. Guess what's outside my window again. <laughs> Is it a helicopter? Which is great because a helicopter zooms past the clock tower, showing us that we're no longer in 55, but in 85. It's an excellent cut. Great job on the editing. Fantastic. Thank you. I I liked how you just layered in the sound from the movie right there. And and so then Marty, you know, goes to sleep after what must have been the most stressful week of four lives. And uh, how the hell does he sleep that way? But, I always thought about that growing up. It's like, yeah, it's funny, but it's like, for all the crap that he just had to do, like, I get it. He's tired. He sleeps at like 10 o'clock. Probably would have gotten home. Maybe this is about eight and a half hours of sleep. It doesn't matter. I'm going to into it. It matters a little. Listen, he then gets up, and now this is a sequence that this was also recently brought to my attention, again, thanks to that subreddit of uh, Our Back to the Future, where uh, Marty told 
Lorraine and George, if your youngest son ever sets the living room um, rug on fire, don't be too hard on him. So Marty's in the present day for him, and his house looks so different, and his brother and sister are successful, and his parents are madly in love, and they're like flirtatious. What the hell's going on? And he kind of collapses, and there's a quick shot of him on the ground when he's trying to get him, and he goes, Mom, Dad, you can very clearly see a burned rug Oh, from when he lit it on fire and it had to be replaced. That's amazing. So I love that. Mm. Another setup and payoff. And, uh, and that took like years for anybody to see. I'm sure people saw it in the 90s, but there was no internet to really post That's on. That's great. Um, so yeah, if it wasn't for, you know, they talk about Marty. Like, if it wasn't for him, we never would have fallen in love. Or No, Biff. So for Biff... Again, and this is that catharsis moment where Marty's just like, well, I can't take the car. It got told, and everybody freaks out, and George is like, I got this, everybody. I got this, which, again, like being amazing because he's an amazing guy now, opens the door, and we see Biff, who's like, see, Biff is just applying the second wax right now, and he even gives Biff like a little tongue-in-cheek crap. As they're reflecting, they're like, if it wasn't for him, we'd never fallen in love, and I'm sitting in my basement watching this by myself. I don't know why I say these things, but it's just like, if it wasn't for his attempted rape, we never would have fallen in love. Like, it's terrible, but that's... Kind of what they're hinting at. Yeah, that that's absolutely <laughs> what happens in the movie, though. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, the the second coat of wax on the car is kind of a, a, a moment to pull the literal on-fire rug out from under our feet because Marty's not going to take the car. He's going to open the garage, and the 4 by 4 is going to be there, and we hear the French horn, and we see Jennifer, and he acts like he hasn't seen her in a week. And everything just comes together that this journey is over like it's the deed has been done things have not only been set right things have been set better than they ever could have been before and then we get that tag and then when the DeLorean pulls up and it crashes into the freaking trash can and Doc pops out wearing sunglasses that I learned from the commentary were solid metal and he couldn't see anything yeah, he couldn't that's see why he kind of was just metal yeah he just walks the was way that he does he's probably like looking straight down and being like Marty and he grabs him like I managed to find his shoulders I don't know how many takes that may, maybe it's just taking the one take but you get that idea that the adventure will go on and where they're going they don't need roads and that <laughs> That's all I got, man. <laughs> that was the last thing I wrote in my my eight-page PhD doctoral <laughs> thesis on Back to the Future. It just ends with "We don't need roads." That's that's it, man. Like that's that's what I got. Like I, I I talked to a fellow supervisor, and he's just like, "You have to get the 4K version." I'm like, I don't know, man. Like there's something to like my crappy VHSs, which the covers are like gone <laughs> from being moved so many times. Like the, I have the special edition DVD. Like I don't know if I need. 4K, like, I don't know, but it's just like, that's it. Like, <laughs> there, there are those movies, though, that you buy every time because it's like, yeah. Like, I, how many times I've bought the movie Alien or Indiana Jones or. Um, so, yeah, no, I get it, though. I get it. So then, real quick, 4K, that's, the, uh, that's, its, that's its own thing. Like, I have to, it's not Blu rays, it has to be a 4K disc. Is that. 4K. Well, yeah, don't buy a 4K disc if you don't have a 4K TV and a 4K player. Well, so I have a 4K TV, um, but I only have PS3. I have to lose 30 pounds to get an Xbox One or a PS5, so, or whatever. So, or just yeah, so you yeah. can't play 4K, and, yeah. Do those play or, 4K? Uh, the Xbox One X does, not the standard one. Okay. I'm going to change my uh, goals on my weight loss chart to say Xbox One X, or Xbox, what was it? <laughs> so, well, so the newest Xbox plays it just fine. 
Awesome. So I'm oh yeah sorry my I've spent that's that's everything I've ever wanted to say I think about my favorite movie like it's it's it it has defined a lot of my life in a lot of interesting ways I think that I, I mean I I I used to take my camcorder and like you know do the pause thing and then move out of the way and hit record again to like disappear and do like little in action shots because of it like I think the whole reason I want I mean I. For anyone who doesn't know, I like to tell people I got into screenwriting because I saw a movie so terrible. I thought somebody else can do better, and I thought, why not me? It's not that, and I'm having this epiphany now, so work with me here. Um, I think it really was me seeing that movie as a little boy and just thinking, like, this is what is possible. And it, the story has only solidified more in my heart and my head as I've gotten older, but, like, I always knew I wanted to make movies because of this movie. Um, and that's And that's... that's that's why it's my favorite. Like that's. <laughs> I'm gonna sleep really good tonight. Oh, oh my gosh! So that that yeah. was delightful. Is, who said we were I, going long form? What am I at right now? Like an hour twenty, I think. Just that's. Oh screw it! Yeah, that's it. That. That's it, everybody. That's that's Back to the Future. Our episodes are as long as they need to be. Yes, that's right. Um, Greatest film of all time. I yeah, that was. <sighs> it's it, it is a it's those those the. Those movies that are so densely thought through without ever feeling dense in execution. I, I'm just struck with how much this movie flies at a nice clip and you're having fun the entire time, but man, it is just packed full of meat. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Ian if you hear this, but I couldn't agree more with what you said to me the other day, which is the movie only ever feels like it's 20 minutes. It, it really does. You know, it feels like it's that fast. He said, um, so with my, my other coworker, Ian, he says, it's like the most rewatchable film of all time. Could not agree more, dude. <laughs> Straight up, could not agree more. Huh. Okay. You feel gush? Yeah. Yeah, man, I feel good. <laughs> uh, quick behind the scenes thing. I stand when we do these things, and I'm just, I got one leg up on like a bar still because I'm just like, I got, I got nothing. <laughs> uh Oh, okay. That was great. Oh, well, One well, last thing from me that I did have written down here is I, I love that this is such a pro-nuclear energy movie. Hey, mm. Professor! <laughs> <laughs> oh, China Syndrome, baby. Yeah. I, I mean, when he opens up the fusion reactor and throws an old can of beer in it and it makes <laughs> power to the future. like And a banana peel, right? Yeah. Maybe... We need to go back to the past so that we can make our future powered by fusion. Okay. Oh, and since you did say that, uh, to follow up on what I said at the start of this episode, for my paradox cut of all three together, I cut right where George is dangling the keys to the car. Because Back to the Future 2 starts with the overblack, and then he opens the garage, and then the 4x4 is there. Um, I cut it right there. So right when he opens the garage, you're in two. And then when Biff says, what the hell is, like, what the hell's going on here? I had it uh, fade into the car being in traffic. So that's where I cut one into two to make it this, you know, and then for, you know, again, for three, like I cut around, I cut like seven or six splices of two into three and I couldn't get around some credits, but I mean, it's just for me. I'm not, I would never sell this or share, but if you want it, um, that's, that's where I cut that, those things together. And that's, that's, that's that payoff there. So that's, it doesn't get better than that. Oh my gosh. Well, well. What's next? <laughs> well, well, well. Um, uh, yeah, I, I. It's time to. 
go have a good smoke now. Um, cast list. That's it. Okay. Yeah. That's what cast list. Yes. Yes. What, is this our podcast? What are we doing here? Right. Um, <laughs> now I know how some of our guests feel. Jeez. <laughs> all right. So go ahead and pick your number. One, two, 345. 345. Oh, my God. 1985. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's go with 176. 176. 176 is Scott Farrer? Farrer? F-A-R-R-A-R? Scott look him up. Farrer. Okay, yeah, let's see. Scott? What? Scott Farrer. Camera operator for ILM. He's uncredited. He's oh, under the visual no. effects section. All the better, because he wasn't credited. We're going to give him credit. Yeah, we are. He's new. Known for his work on Transformers, Minority Report, AI. A lot. He Oh, a lot. Um, he's got a movie in theaters right now. Quiet Place Part 2. <gasps> Scott! Fantastic, my man! Yeah, he's you been deserve all the credit. What the since 77. Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah. 2. Star Trek 6. 3. Cocoon. Back to the Future. Star Tours. <laughs> So Disney. He's won an Oscar. What did he win for? Well, let me find out. Scott, my man, Jurassic you've had Park. an insane career. Yes, he has. Uh, gosh, he, and you've been nominated he, so many times. He what won are the for chances he Cocoon. did the hand, the hand effects. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be funny. Oh yeah, you you, you won an Oscar for Cocoon with uh, Ken Rawson, Ralph McQuarrie, and David Barry. Man. Well, you know what? Yeah. We're giving you all the credit today, Scott, because you really, I, I don't, this is, again, these are never sarcastic. Like you, like because of you, this movie rocks. Okay. Like you worked hard on it. You spent time on it. You didn't get credit, which is, which I hate, but dude, like you rock, man. Like, thank you so much for working on back to the future. I'm Hell sure you yeah. get bugged about it all the time, but dude, like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott Farrar, Farrar, Farrar. You, you rock, man. Thank you. Amen. That, yeah, he's had a hell of a career. So, we are now going to pick a movie that Nick just, you know, is not a big fan of. Let me just tear some paper here. I'm going to tear some paper with some movies written on it. I've got to say something nice. I'm going to mix them up, and I'm going to lay them out in front of me. Here they are. And while you're doing that, I'm going to... uh... I'm going to follow up with something from season one. I'm going to gush to you guys about Chewy Nerds. They are a great snack. It's like one of the most delicious candies. I found it on accident last Easter during the COVID times. And now my mother-in-law and I have bonded over our deep love of the Chewy Nerds. And they're big and they're beautiful and they're wonderful. And if, if I ever want nerds again, I just get the big Chewy Nerds. I have to gush about big Chewy Nerds. They're a the great snack food. I chew, chewy sweet tarts too. Those are good stuff. All right. I love chewy sweet. Chew, sorry. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Okay. One, two, three. One, two, three. Two. Two. Nick, please say something nice about. Oh, I love it. Say something nice about Muppets from Space. No! <laughs> oh man. Thematically so perfect. <sighs> Season one, the first episode of Cinema Gush, was uh, uh, Muppets Treasure Island. So I'm really excited to hear him say something. I, top, this is like a 
This is a notable dislike of yours, is this movie. The first scene of Gonzo's dream where he's like, I don't want to be alone. And you find out that Gonzo was left behind Noah's Ark. Uh, that scene is really harsh because the old Testament people tend to be very harsh. Um, I, the thing I like about Muppets from space is that as flawed as I think that movie is and just not great. I think that Gonzo did need an answer to what he was. You know, I think in Muppet treasure Island, when, Everyone tries to reference Gonzo. He's like, and you're a, uh, you're a, uh, whatever, right? That whole thing. It was kind of good to get an idea of what he was. And I saw that movie at Pollock Tempe Theaters in uh, Tempe, Arizona with my parents uh, in 98 or 99, I think. And uh, I mean, when you've got Muppet Christmas Carol and Muppet Treasure Island in your back catalog, like you just expect something amazing. And I, I wasn't terribly blown away, but you know what? I love Gonzo. And I love that that's the, what they went for. I love that they went for trying to explain Gonzo being an alien. So, well, and that, that, was, that worked, you know. Yeah. That was pretty nice. I mean, I, if I didn't know better, I'd say you even like the movie. Hey, uh, something nice. What you, and something so spice. <laughs> what, what have you been watching these days? Huh. Well, so... Uh, quick behind the scenes thing. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, just life's been, uh, my, my dog had to have surgery, so it's been insanely complicated and I haven't had time to, um, to really gush, but we are just about done with parks and recreation, which I've really enjoyed. Nice. Um, I've just about finished season 24 of the Simpsons, which I'll say it now. We are going to be writing an episode of the Simpsons on this podcast. We'll talk about it from time to time, but I feel like now I have a pretty good grasp of how they did it. So I'm just going to write an episode for fun and then I'll put it out there for everybody to read. Um, <laughs> awesome. 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 We'll go into more of that in future episodes. Um, but I finished Redwall, Andrew, uh, and I really, really liked it. Like, it's, nice. I can't believe I didn't read it in middle school. It is fun. It's like a unique uh, retelling of like the Sword and the Stone and like the Excalibur quest and, and King Arthur and stuff. And, 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 and if you, and if you have the ability, for sure, do the audiobook because it's an audio drama with a whole cast of people acting. It's, awesome uh it is definitely for kids 8 to 12 uh like something you can listen to on a long car ride it's fun as heck brian Jacques, a great great writer like for you know he had uh the jk rowling story before the jk rowling story of just like here's a guy who was reading to kids and not at all impressed with children's literature and then wrote redwall and and i really liked it and i have uh, i think it's uh corn fl- something flowers the second one i have the second one on hold now it's gonna be months before i get it because i guess everyone's listening to it now that we talked about on our last show. Um, so I really enjoyed Redwall like quite a bit. And I would absolutely recommend that to our viewers, listeners. I maybe a view on an April fool's. We'll see. It, um, I, it is I sitting the on fire my bookshelf. F- so that that's like on my next list. So, yeah. Um, so that's awesome. I read the back to the future book that I just, I mentioned earlier, the word we don't need roads book. Um, and, uh, okay. <laughs> So my wife was out of town this past weekend, so I put on Nomadland. And what yeah, I need from you, Brendan... It seems like you had thoughts on this. So aggressively fine to me is like a three out of five. What would you call aggressively not fine? What is aggressively... Not a bad. Uh, yeah. Because it's mm-hmm. certainly... It's, it's, 
It's a nothing. Like, it's just, it's, I don't feel bad for her. It's very obvious she makes the choice to live this life. People on, I've read a couple discussion threads about it because I'm just like, what am I not getting here? Like, the cinematography is very beautiful and the music is very awesome. Um, It's probably music that you could work to all day. Um, So that was really good. Frances McDormand is fine. I I don't think she's best actress fine, personally. Um, The thing is, is cinematography and music might be enough to sell it for me. I'm still on the line. so, so, So see it. I, I I would recommend that you see it. I don't think it was best picture. I think that was a mis- I don't think that was correct. Would um, you have given it instead? I mean, there wasn't a lot of great options this year. Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Controversial which, opinion. Which, which is back on HBO Max. No. Um. I've probably gotten no. Sonic the Hedgehog myself, but. Oh. Uh, yeah, like what, what they were with all my Sonic nods, man. <laughs> I so I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure I would have given it to Minari, um, mm. which only won one Oscar, which seems like a crime, but it was also a very weird. Every, you know what? Everyone's forgiven. Everyone's forgiven. Like last year was insane for everybody, and everyone's everyone's forgiven. Like it's okay. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter. The Oscars haven't meant anything to me in many years. I just I don't think. I think if you looked at all the other films, um, I think I was talking to Kyle about this, like Judas and the Black Messiah. He, I think he's what he was going for. Uh, Mank was aggressively bad. I didn't like it at all. Um, but I'm betting for me, I could tell just by looking at the titles, Minari, Sound of Metal and the Father. I think all three of those I will enjoy. And I'm not follow up with this. I promise. Cause this just seems like a very throwaway thing to say, but it's just like, I just, I just, it didn't, it didn't do it for you. I get it. Yeah, hey. what's the movie with um, that Sean Penn directed uh, Speed Racer in Into the Wild? Into the Wild. Like, that's what, I, as if, yeah, that's that what I thought yeah. when I saw the trailer. I very strongly thought of Into the Wild, and that was just the cinematography. You'd be correct. Selling me on it. So yeah, and you would be correct to think that because the the movie has the the movie has very beautiful moments. You know, a three out of five is fair. It's aggressively fine. I'm sticking with it's aggressively fine. Um, it just to me the story didn't really go many places, and I like my stories to go places. And um, I think that for the music, for the cinematography, and for the scene where the one lady is talking about um, dying in eight months, for those three reasons, see Nomadland. It just wasn't my favorite, but I thought it for what they did, quite, quite, quite nice, quite okay, quite okay, quite, quite and okay, I will, quite okay. And I will, uh, I will leave it at that. I am also trying to catch up on Professor's List before he comes on the show. So I saw uh, the paradox, the something paradox. I can't think of what it's called right now, but that was amazing. And, and I will gush about that later with him. So, Brennan, what have you been consuming media-wise, game-wise, book-wise, movie-wise? I haven't – not a ton. I, I'm sure I'm forgetting some things. I, uh, I've been slowly – I'm trying to savor them because these, these are just so good. I've been doing Netflix's season two of Love, Death, Robots. Ooh. Um, have you seen any of these? No, I have not. First season is very adult in the way that, uh, is kind of annoying sometimes. Like there are episodes that is like, we're R rated animation. So we're just going to throw as much nudity, sex and violence as we can. That's annoying. But I say that with the caveat that some of those episodes are the best 10 to 20 minutes of animation I've ever seen. Ah. I mean, 
they're stunning. And season three has, I'm, I'm three episodes in again. I'm trying to save from a bit more. Um, I, I have not found that, uh, edge Lord darkness <laughs> that season one had a bit of, um, strongly, strongly recommend season one. Just know what you're getting into. Um, okay. Season two has been great. I adore it. It's, it's been wonderful. Um, me and the wife are our evening comfort food that recently. Cause we like, you know, irreverent animation. We've been doing the Mike Tyson mysteries. <gasps> yes. They're Dude, great. I got my wife to start saying it's a hat on a hat because of this freaking show. <laughs> we ping pong back to it periodically. We're on season four, so we're almost caught up, and oh, it's so good. It's it so is bad. so good. Yeah. Mike Tyson's self-deprecating humor is just—it's wonderful. I never thought I'd say that, but it's great. Norm Macdonald, Oscar winner, Nat yep. Faxon, just oh, and the first episode is about Cormac McCarthy. Like, how, you know, yes, like, it is. Oh. Yes, it is. And it just it's gets more pleasure. insane and absurd from there. They're, you know, they're 15-minute episodes. They're on Hulu. They're great. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think what else. I don't know if I mentioned last time I did the QAnon documentary, which was fantastic and mm-hmm. disturbing. Um, there, there. So, okay, there's one. Uh, I've been excited to talk about this, and I'm going to try to keep it short so that we don't just double gush in a movie here. <laughs> but, so, about three nights ago, just... Saturday night, Friday, Friday night, Friday night, mm-hmm. um, come home from a, a social gathering that we were at. It was very late. We're very tired. We're very, very tired. Um, the wife decides around 11 o'clock that she's not staying up anymore. She's going to bed and I'm like almost asleep. Um, and I'm say, I'm going to stay up for like 15 minutes longer. Um, and I noticed there's a disc in my Xbox. And oh. so I decide just on a whim to see what disc it is. And uh, it was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. And I thought, I'll watch 10 minutes of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And then two hours later, as the credits are rolling and I'm weeping softly, it, I it. think to myself, <laughs> I don't know, man. You know how it, how it takes a couple years for you to start to think about how you really feel about maybe a movie that's really hit you? Like, you, you oh, get yeah. that feeling in the theater and you really like this, but you're like, I'm not sure where it's going to land. I... This, this may not be a long-term feeling, but um, this might be my favorite movie. I, oh, yeah. I freaking love that movie. I think that movie is perfect in every way. It's funny, all the things you're saying about Back to the Future today, I'm thinking, yeah, that's true of Spider-Man. Like, <laughs> like Chekhov's guns, interdimensional Chekhov's guns set up. Every single theme loops back on itself and touches upon its previous iteration and in, and blossoms and grows and recontextualizes. I mean, to say nothing about the fact that the movie is animated in such a gorgeous way that will be imitated and people will fail to capture for decades to come. It looks stunning. The editing is perfect. The acting is second to none. The character work, the, the writing, the humor, the heart. I have not laughed that hard in a long time. I've not cried that hard in a long time. It's a, it's a perfect movie. I mean, it's a hey, perfect movie. You know, two weeks in a row of you gushing about Phil Lord and Chris Miller, I love those guys, and that works for me. So I love it. Yep, yep. It just goes, I'm like, I, I will, Chris Lord and, and Tim Miller, they, they decide to be producers on an animated feature, and I will watch it without any hesitation day one. Mm-hmm. It, that yeah 
Yeah. I Someday watch Twenty One Jump Street. Now that you've mentioned that, <laughs> I I was actually thinking that myself because who would have thought? I mean, they're good movies, but I never would have thought that they were going to be making the best stuff in the best stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, well, someday I'm gonna have to gush about Spider-Man. We're gonna have to do an episode because I I just can't say. And I, I know movie buffs shouldn't say their favorite movie is a 2018 animated Spider-Man movie, but man, it is so good. <laughs> I'm holding you to that for season four. <laughs> oh, uh, so good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, cool. Well, uh, I, yeah. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Like any other no, no, books? That, or, that's no, it. That's it. That's it. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, folks, uh, I mean, this is probably just catharsis for me, too. Like, thank you for listening to people who listen to this. Uh, give us a comment on the Facebook page if you like this episode or on the Podbean uh, sector. We watch that uh, as well for our view count. And, and hopefully we'll hit 1,000 with you this season. And, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I think I'm going to pour myself a Kirkland Signatures whiskey and go sit in the bath while watching Simpsons Season 25. So you all can have an amazing night. And we'll catch you in the next one. Later, people. It's a pleasure. That was amazing. Thank you. That was so good. I was going to cry twice. I didn't quite do it. (laughs) But I definitely was tearing up. So. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing.